Good morning, Doxa Church. My name's Lauren, and will you join me in opening up your Bibles? We're going to be reading this morning from Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pains in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Thank you, Lauren. Well, good morning, Docs of Church. Guys, it is great to, to see you. You guys doing all right today? All right. The overcast messes with me, so... This is my attempt to wake you up, okay? But uh, 
Guys, if you're, if you're new, welcome again to, to Doxa. It's great to have you part of our family gathering. Excited that you're here. My name is Rob. I'm, I'm one of the pastors. And if I haven't had a chance to meet you, maybe this is your first time or you've been coming for the last several weeks and we haven't met yet, I'd love the opportunity to meet you. Come find me before you, you head out of the service and I would just absolutely love that. So here's what we got. Genesis chapter three today. All right, we're, we're entering into one of the most significant chapters of the entire Bible. All right, and by way of introduction, let me just remind you of, of where we've been, okay? So we've been studying this for the last handful of weeks, Genesis 1 and 2. We've worked our way through this. God has created all of creation. It was perfect. It was orderly. It was just insanely beautiful, just perfect. All right, that the picture in, of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, where we looked at, is just utter perfection. And as God completed creation, he kind of just like steps back and kind of gazes at it. He sets his eyes on creation and he declares that his creation, everything was just very good. This is Genesis 1:31. Creation, life, human experience, guys, it was just perfect. All right, there was nothing wrong. Everything was just very good. Now, here's what I want you to do, okay? I just want you to take that reality, take that truth of like the perfection in Eden, and I want you to hold up your life experience next to it. Because something has gone incredibly wrong. We all know it. We all feel it. We all talk about it. We hear about it. We experience it as we navigate through the everyday stuff of life, through the brokenness, the suffering, and the pain that we all experience. That the, the picture of perfection in Eden is just radically different than Madison today. I mean, that perfection is just radically different from your experience, my experience as we walk through life. See, God intended this state of perfection in all things. And, and the Old Testament uses the word shalom, okay? And shalom is, is really just the word that, that means peace. It means wholeness, a completeness. It's just like this sense of, of perfect harmony. And guys, all of humanity, we want this stuff. And many people, many of you, you will spend your entire life trying to create that feeling of shalom. We want this. And guys, and the reason that, that humanity is like obsessed with finding this is because in every single human being's mind, there is an echo. There's an echo of the Garden of Eden. There's an echo of the way things are supposed to be. And we feel this. I mean, if you're all just honest with yourself, like you, you know that something's not right in our world. And we try to find so many different ways to find that perfection, to find that shalom in our lives, that completion, that harmony. We look to so many different places. Yet, as Gary Brashear says, and I'm gonna quote him, he says this, no matter how much money we spend, how many elections we hold, how many organizations we start, how many blogs we write, how many complaints we air, how many tears we cry, how many wars we wage, boredom, annoyances, miseries, fears, tragedies, sufferings, injustices, evil, sickness, pain, and death continue unabated. And the question is why? Why is our experience in life like this? Doxa Genesis chapter three gives us the answer. All right, this part of the Bible is, is called the fall. All right, that before this chapter, everything's all good, right? Everyone's happy, the sun's out, the birds are chirping, Adam and Eve, they're just running around naked, they're feeding each other grapes, there's a little Marvin Gaye playing in the background, right? It's just a good day, it's like my honeymoon, right? It's too much, okay, sorry. Right? But it's just, it's just good. 
very good. That's the point. It's just very, very good. But it all goes downhill starting here in Genesis 3 as we watch the perfect life in the garden turn to death in a grave. Because Genesis 3 shows us how sin and death and Satan and suffering and brokenness and pain all come into the human experience. And while this chapter is most definitely one of the most depressing in the Bible, it's also one of the most important because it not only gives us and shows us the source of, of suffering and sin, but it also gives us the solution to it, which is so helpful for us to understand life more clearly and to learn our way back from the grave to the garden. So I really believe that God wants to do something great among us. He wants to be super helpful to us today as we open up the Bible here in Genesis. So let's get to work. Look back to Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, and I'm just gonna stop there, okay? Because I just want you to think about this. Does this make any of you think like, huh, a talking snake? And I know that some of you, you, you've been Christians your whole life, right? And this is like, oh yeah, totally. That makes absolute sense. And others of you maybe have more my background and this is like the first time you kind of come to church and you're like, what? And as I was thinking about this and, and studying this this week, you know, I started thinking about Rob Warren 15 years ago before I became a Christian. And this is an example of something that I scoffed at. I remember sitting in locker rooms, all right, with my teammates doing Bible studies and they would talk about stuff like this. And I had the thought, like, are you kidding me? Like you guys are all just doing that thing where you nod your head and be like, hmm, right? And I'm like, really? A talking snake, you're buying this. And throughout human history, this wasn't just me and what I'd, how I scoffed at this, but throughout human history, this text has been readily mocked and viewed in a bunch of different ways to really just kind of dismiss the truth here in Genesis and the Bible. You know, for example, many people will say when they come to this, this part in Genesis, that, that really this text is, is merely just a, a fable or a myth or some type of legend. And they'll kind of dismiss the, the, valid, the validity of, of Genesis chapter three by saying, like, we don't understand like the, the literary genre. And so, but guys, if you, if you know this, if you study literature at all, and you study the different genres, you quickly find out that the literary style of Genesis does not fit into any of those like fable, myths, legends, that type of thing, because Genesis presents itself to be historical. All right, C.S. Lewis said it like this, and I quote, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they're like. I know, not, I know that not one of them is like this. Doxa, here's, here's the point. Genesis 3 is actual history. All right, it's the history of the, the first man and the first woman recorded by Moses under the inspiration of the Spirit to tell us something that is true and useful to us concerning God and ourselves. And as we're introduced to this serpent, the question is, is who is this? Right? Like, who is this, this snake? And if, if you know your Bible, Revelation 12, 9 should come to mind where John is, is talking about this ancient serpent, and he says that his name is Satan, who is the devil. And throughout the Bible, he's given many other names. But as we look at this narrative, we need to realize that that while emphatically historical, guys, there's really a sense in which we don't know if the serpent like fully embodied Satan or if the serpent symbolized him. It's, it's really not a detail of first importance to Moses, but what we do know is this, okay, hear me. Satan is on the scene in Eden. He's with the first of humanity, and while it seems strange, 
we should take it at face value. And the question as we consider Satan on the scene in Eden that cries out for an answer is is this, is where did Satan come from? Because up until this point, right, Genesis 1 and 2, like God's creating everything, it's it's perfect, there's been no mention of the serpent, there's been no mention of Satan, no evil in the created world, but then he just shows up as kind of the enemy of God here. And so what what do we do with this? What happened? And this is where the rest of the Bible is like really helpful for us because as we look at places like the little book of Jude, or, or Second Peter in the New Testament, this gives us kind of clues as to what happened. And Jude 1.6 and Second Peter 2.4 tell us that there were angels. There were angels in heaven who sinned against God, and because of this, God cast them out of heaven. And so what we learn is that as God is creating everything, he really just kind of made two types of beings, two kinds of beings. There were spirit beings that he called angels, and then there were human beings, us. And as God created these beings, there was this host of, of holy angels, and, and some of them, including Satan, sinned, or as Jude 1.6 puts it, did not stay within their position of authority. That Satan, one of the, the lead angels, was driven by pride, as we look and see this in the book of Isaiah and throughout Ezekiel. He didn't want to be with God, he didn't want to serve God, he didn't want to love God, but Satan himself, he wanted to be God. And so Satan originates as this created angel He declares war on God, and there's just this great conflict in heaven. And the Bible says that Satan and many angels were kicked out, and because of this eviction, those spirits are now known as demons. All right, and I'm not going to get into demonology today, but just let me say this, okay? Doc said, this is not just informative to help us in terms of history and like what happened leading up to Genesis 3, but this is really extremely helpful to understand our world today and our existence in it. That you just need to know this, that ultimately you have an enemy. Doxa, you're hated. Not by God, because God loves you. He made you in his image. He loves you, but by Satan. And Satan wants to destroy you by leading you to eternal separation from God, which is just a terrible conscious reality of hell, that Satan, he couldn't destroy God. He hated God. His pride in his life made him hate God. He tried his best to destroy him. God kicks him out. He realizes I can't do anything to God. And so what I will do is I will set my sights on the things that are most like him. Image bearers, people. And he seeks to destroy humanity. And this is where we're at in Genesis chapter three. Satan shows up and he's seeking to destroy the apex of God's creation. And the way that he does this is to get humanity to question the words and the character of God. Hear this, guys, this is some of his tactics to get people to question the words and the character of God. And he's about to speak, and I just want you to watch his tactics and how he seeks to get people to question and disbelieve God's words. All right, the Apostle Paul says this in, in 2 Corinthians 2.11. If you want to write that down and look it up this week, Paul tells us that, that Satan has certain schemes and tactics that we need to be aware of because if not, if we don't understand how he works in our world, we'll follow him away from the presence of God. And so ultimately what he does is he just tries to lie and deceive people. This is why Jesus says in John 8.44 that he's the father of lies, that all he does is deceive people and lead people away from God. Now, 
Let me just pause and just recognize that maybe all this like Satan and demon talk is just kind of weird for you. You're nudging your wife and you're like, I told you we should have waited till Christmas. They were going to talk about baby Jesus and it would have been fine, right? And if you're thinking that, okay, this might be weird for you. But guys, I just need to tell you this, that you need to know this about the world that you're living in. You're born into a world that is in the midst of a conflict, a spiritual battle. Ephesians chapter six, Paul talks about this. First Peter chapter five, we see this. And Satan is seeking to lie to you, to confuse you, ultimately to turn you against God and your created purpose, thereby killing you for eternity. Just the reality that you just need to know. But the first thing that Satan does is to go to Eve in the garden. And he asks her a question. And the question that he asks really just seeks to diminish God. Look, he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree that's in the garden? Now, this seems like an innocent enough question, but if you remember back to Genesis chapter two, is that what God said? No, this is not what God said. Satan twists and manipulates God's word to plant a seed of doubt in humanity about who God is. Because if you look back to Genesis chapter two, verse 16, here's what God actually said. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so let me just tell you this about God. Guys, God is such a generous God. James talks about this, that every good gift in our, in our life comes from God. He is a generous, generous giver. And he gives so abundantly to, to us as his people. And he only has, with his generosity, just a few minor restrictions. And, and those restrictions that he gives us throughout the Bible, guys, they're not meant to rob us of joy. They're not meant to steal life from us. But they're actually to help us find the fullness of life. You just need to know this about God. Now, I've, I've heard it explained like this as it relates to good parents, right? That Good parents, like, they don't have, like, a crazy amount of rules for their kids, right? Did anybody watch, um, like, that Sound of Music deal with Carrie Underwood, like, five, six years ago? Did anybody watch that? No? Okay, well, love makes men do crazy things, and that was my story with Lisa, and I watched this. But in this movie, there's this captain, this, like, drill sergeant guy. And he's got a bunch of kids and he just walks around his house with like a dog whistle and he's barking out orders, right? And it's just like the kids like get in line and they're just walking around like robots. And some of you are tempted to think that this is how God is. He's like a tyrannical boss. This is not who God is. God essentially had one rule for Adam and Eve. Don't die. That's really it. He says, man, I've given you everything. Have fun, explore, enjoy it. Just don't take from that one tree because it will kill you. And if you get, you get this, if you're a parent, like you, you get this, right? You, you kind of get your kids and you kind of like huddle up. Come on, mom and dad got some house rules for you, okay? No drinking, anything from under the sink. Let's start fires in the fireplace, right? The nail gun in the garage, that's dad's, don't touch it, right? Just a few basic rules to keep your kids alive. That's pretty much the role of parents for the first couple years. Just keep your kids breathing, right? Well, we get this when we talk about parents because we don't think about this when it comes to God. This is how God is. He's so generous to us. But Satan shows up and immediately starts to plant seeds of doubt in humanity to make us think that God is very restrictive. 
And he comes on the scene and he tries to make God look bad from the very beginning. This is how he works. He lies to get humanity to go against God in the hopes of separating us from the source of life. And this is what he did, but guys, this is what he still does. And I know that there's people in here that you believe this lie about God. Like you, you hear God say, like, don't get drunk or don't be sexually immoral. And you view God as very, very restrictive. Ducks, I just want you to know this is so far from the truth. That God has given us so much to enjoy in life and he simply says that there are some things to be enjoyed at certain times. Like for example, sex. Sex is a gift of God. Praise the Lord, amen, right? Get the band up here, two hands in the air and we can just get out of here, right? No, you guys are, come on. Guys, we need to talk about this at Docs Men. That's a great thing, okay? But he gives us sexuality and he says there's a time for this to be used and to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. We're gonna talk about this as we get to marriage in the coming weeks, but he also says that there's some things that should not be engaged with at all because it'll kill you. The point is that God is so good and he's trying to help us. He's generous, not restrictive. But this is the start of the very first temptation and how Satan begins to break God's plan for humanity. Now look at verse two and three. The woman is about to have a conversation with Satan now. The seed of doubt has been planted about God's word and his character. And now verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you surely won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, I want you to see what happens to Eve here. Three things that happen to her, but also that we're tempted to do as well. And the first is this, is that Eve, she diminishes God's word. Verse two, as Eve repeats what God said, she actually diminishes and modifies God's actual words that God said in chapter two, verse 16, you may eat of every tree. But here, look back, Eve leaves out the word every. It's almost as if she's kind of like ho-hum about the freedom that God gives. And she minimizes God's provision in her life. And with her unenthusiastic rendition of God's word, she really just discounted the generosity of God. And in effect, she's kind of just like indicating a very subtle agreement with Satan. Saying like, you know, maybe God isn't that good. And as she diminished God's word, she also, the secondarily, she added to it. Look at verse three. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Guys, God never said you must not touch it. Eve added this. And what she was doing as Satan was tempting her and manipulating her is she was magnifying God's strictness. And so as we listen to Eve here, and as she portrays God as just a tyrannical boss, not a generous father. And this is so, this isn't just an Eve thing, this is so typical of people today. Guys, this is really the birth of legalism. Adding to God's word and confusing who God is and what God says. And some of you, you grew up in legalistic families and very legalistic churches that have told you your entire life, you have to do this, you have to do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. And if you do that, God will love you. 
It's legalism. It's adding to God's word. And that creates a very poor view of God in the life of people. I've talked to many of you that have this. You grew up in a certain denomination, a certain type of church, and you have this view of God that he's very restrictive and he's got a heavy hand. This is what Eve began to do. She started to view God in a really poor light. And so she diminished his his word. She added to it, but she also softened it. She softened God's word. She says, or you will die. You notice what she left out. She left out God's precise word, surely. Surely you will die. That Eve was so confused at this moment and she removed the certitude of death from that tree. And as she diminished God's word, as she added to God's word, as she softened God's word, she was ripe for Satan's blatant lie because Satan hears that she isn't really sure about what God said and he comes out and now he just directly contradicts and opposes God. That he started off with kind of an innocent question and now he says this, you will surely not die. A direct opposition to God. And in the most simplified way of of saying it, Satan is saying this, you can't trust God. He's a liar. And he makes Eve believe that nothing will really happen. Eve starts to think like, okay, I'm just gonna do what I want. I don't need to listen to God. It's gonna be really okay. Nothing God said is, is really true. He's just restrictive. He's just trying to scare me. And many people do this today. All right, there's, there's people likely in this room where you hear the word of God and you're tempted to believe that it's not true. And you think, and, and we think, right? We all do this at times. We think, like, I know that God says that that's sin, but it's not that big of a deal. We hear God say, like, sin will bring death to your life and your relationship with him. And we start to think, did he really say that? And you do your own thing. You follow your own ways, not thinking that there's any consequences for the way you live. This is part of the way that Satan deceives people, even today. And at this point in the narrative, all right, the man and the woman have a choice to make. And it's the same choice that we have every single day. It's this, will I believe God or not? This is our choice every single day. This is the same thing that we hear. We hear this from Satan, we hear this from culture, like you can't trust God, he's a a liar. But the the words of God in the Bible, they're not really even true, like they're, they're kind of more of like a helpful book, just if you really wanna be a good person, study the Bible. And just as Satan went to Eve, he will come to every single one of us and he will say, don't believe God. Nothing's gonna happen, do what you want. He's actually just trying to hold back from you because he doesn't want you to have like a really good life. He doesn't want you to have a fun time. So just don't believe him. And as Eve hears this, she starts believing it and her perspective on life and God totally changes and the tree that she's looking at that said that will bring death, now she looks at it and it looks really good. This is what he does. Now, before we go any further, let me just say this, guys. This is why we put such an emphasis on the Bible here at Doxa. 
This is why one of our core values as a church is being Bible-saturated, that we say this all the time, that if you prick us, we bleed Bible. That's the goal, that we know the Word of God so well. And why is this needed? It's because so we can know the truths of God and not be led astray by Satan and culture that will take us down a path that's away from God, thereby killing us spiritually. And so we don't follow Adam and Eve in their ways. Instead, we look to Jesus because Jesus modeled this perfectly. And so we see Eve in the garden. Satan's there deceiving her. But then we look into Matthew chapter four, Jesus isn't in a garden, but he's in a desert. And Satan is there on the scene and he's speaking the same lies, the same deception as he did to Eve. But how did Jesus respond? He didn't diminish He didn't add to, he didn't soften God's word, but he quoted back scripture. And unlike Eve, right? Eve didn't know what God said. She was confused and Satan kept pushing. When Jesus confronted Satan with scripture, he fled. Satan will come to you and he will say, it's really not a big deal. It's not sin. You do you, no big deal certainly not going to have any negative effect on your life. And he will deceive you. And Eve is being deceived here. She believes lies. And then verse 6, look. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, her perspective just radically shifts. All of a sudden, like, she's believing these lies about God and his word. And now the tree looks good. Instead of causing death, it's like it looks good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes. And the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of it, ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And mankind falls. Sin comes into the world, and the sin of perfection and shalom is now broken. We just watched the man and the woman just go from a a place of knowing the truth of God to now being deceived by lies start doing their own thing. And then here's what comes next, verse seven. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The first thing that they do is to separate themselves from one another. Guys, this is what sin does. Sin brings about separation and division. Guys, you know why there is so much division and separation in our world today. It's right here. It's sin. You want to know why there's so much separation and tension and can be divisions in your marriage? Because sin. Sin divides. It it separates. And this is what they begin to experience, this broken relationship. Because before this, guys, they're naked without shame, right? You go back. They're standing there. They're naked without shame. And now they're naked with shame. And they try to cover themselves up. And so they did, in fact, gain knowledge from the tree that they ate from, but it turned out to be the knowledge of evil and shame and death. They lost their innocence. But they didn't know what evil and sin was before this moment. And as they learned this, guys, it drastically changed their life. And I just want you to understand this. Like, when it comes to temptation in our life, guys, it's based off our knowledge of, of evil and sin and experiences from our past. Adam and Eve, they didn't even have that until this moment. And somehow, that piece of fruit didn't taste as good as it was promised. And this is always the case with sin, guys. Sin usually sounds so good and enticing in the moment. And Satan will say to you, it actually is good. 
go for it. And maybe now you're starting to see like the tension that you have in your life. And then you're like, temptation, like how does that work? This is how it works. It looks really good and he will say, go for it. But oftentimes as we look back, we realize it wasn't worth it at all. The negative effects far outweigh the immediate gratification. You know, unfortunately, I have a number of friends who have cheated on their wives. And I've watched them navigate through the devastation that has come after that. And even as I talk to them, I mean, they'll be, they'll be the first ones to say, should have never done that. I would do anything to go back and change that. There's not one thing I wouldn't do to go back. That in the moment, it was just, I just got wrapped up in it and I just was like, I somehow convinced myself that this was good. And they're like, immediately after, my eyes were open and I saw that it was not good. Guys, this is what sin does in our life. And as Adam and Eve sin, their eyes are open, they saw their nakedness, they saw their guilt and their shame. And although they could cover their physical bodies, they were unable to cover their guilt. And this is why, look at verse eight, they hide. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. They hide from God. And I just want you to see how incredibly sad of a picture this is. The picture of, of God walking through the garden in the cool of the day seems to really just kind of imply that this was a regular habit of God to come into the garden and speak with Adam, perhaps on a daily basis. That Adam had like the incomparable privilege and joy of speaking with God himself face to face as one man speaks with another. This privilege is about to be lost. I mean, imagine that. Feel the loss of that. Meeting with God face to face, having this relationship with him, and then all of a sudden you realize in that moment, everything has changed. Christian, I hope you can feel the weight and the devastation of that. This is what sin does. Breaks our relationship with God. And some of you have been hiding from him. You're in church, but you're, you're hiding from God. But you're starting to hear that small voice calling out for you. Adam, where are you? And that's why you're here. God brought you here to speak to you today, to meet with you. Because here's the truth, guys. This is not just a record of historical facts, but we are all like Adam and Eve. This room is filled with Adams and Eves. This isn't just what happened a long time ago, but this is still what happens today. We do the exact same thing. We don't listen to the voice of God. We believe lies, we act on them, we sin and we mess everything up. And that sin that, met, that marks all of our lives will lead to judgment. And this is what we see in verses 14 through 19. If you look, I'm not gonna get into this today because we're gonna be diving into this over the next couple weeks as we look at marriage and work. But let me just say this, guys. The doctrine of judgment is a real thing. Humanity, all of humanity, will one day stand before God to answer for the lives that we live and the sin in our life, and God will judge us. That just as surely as Adam and Eve were judged and received consequences, we will as well. 
maybe your friend brought you today and they're like, dude, this church is so great. You should come check. You're like, what are you talking about? Guys, this is, this is not me. Listen to me. Listen. This is not me being all hellfire and brimstone. All right, this is me like standing under the authority of the Bible saying that this is absolutely true. And my job is to simply tell you the truth. Your job is to listen to it and figure out what to do with it. But this is me like loving you enough to say, this is all of our realities. The doctrine of judgment is one of the things that Satan will say, it is not real. Don't listen to God. He's a liar. Do your thing. We love you enough to say, that's not true. God loves you. He made a way for you. But it's not this way. This is a serious matter that should make all of us just tremble a little bit because our sin leads to so much, but mostly separation from God and death, ultimate eternal death. Now, guys, if I stopped there, this would be like the worst message in the world and like the worst church service in the world, okay? Because anytime the Bible is opened up and Jesus is not proclaimed, the Bible wasn't opened up rightly. And there is, there's no Jesus, okay? There's, there's no church, but there is Jesus. And there's gospel news here. There's good news that in the midst of all of this sin and guilt and shame, there's grace. And I want to end with showing you four aspects to God's grace. We see this depressing narrative of how it screwed up everything. But look at this, four aspects to God's grace. Number one, God came calling. Verse nine, but the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? The good news is this, Doc, that God doesn't let the man and the woman go. Even though they're running and they're hiding in their sin, he refuses to let them go and he comes and he pursues them and he comes calling, asking, where are you at? What did you do? And as he was doing this, guys, he wasn't coming in anger. He was coming in love that God was seeking reconciliation with Adam and Eve. That this reconciliation, however, could only happen if they first confess their sin. And God is giving them, by asking them these questions, he's giving them an opportunity to confess. And here's the beginning of our understanding of the ministry and the life of Jesus, right? That just as God came calling out for Adam, Jesus comes into human history calling out for us. God loves you. He's got a plan and he's relentlessly pursuing you. He's not gonna stop chasing you despite your sin. And he's coming to you today because he loves you. And he's calling out and he's inviting you to come to himself or come back to him. Number two, God gives a promise, right? That God not only pursues, but he gives Satan a death sentence and a way for us to overcome sin, shame, and guilt, that Satan is gonna get crushed. Amen? Amen. He's gonna get crushed. Look at verse 15. This is what theologians call the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first gospel, that this is the first promise of redemption in human history. There's hope. Listen, verse 15. This is God speaking to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Guys, this is Jesus. Jesus is the offspring talked about here who will come and he will crush Satan. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 16. May the Lord Jesus soon come and allow you to crush Satan under your feet. And Jesus does this by dying for us. Guys, this is the gospel. That the cross, the empty tomb was a death blow to Satan's lies and schemes and the reality of hell. 
if we come to him. Number three, God made us close. Look at Genesis 3.20. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Doctor, so this is the first sacrifice in the Bible. And it again points us to Jesus, that Adam and Eve, they made just a pathetic attempt to cover their shame with leaves. And now they discover that their shame can only be covered by God himself at a high price. That the covering of their guilt could only come with the shedding of innocent blood as God had to take the life of at least one innocent animal in the garden to provide skin as clothes. And this is clearly a picture of the final cost of salvation provided by Jesus, that through faith, Jesus takes away our guilt, our sin, and gives us himself as a covering. And this comes, all right, this, this covering comes to Adam and Eve after their confession, that God comes asking this, this, this question, and they eventually both come to this place of saying, I ate the fruit. And that was a weak confession, but it was good enough for God. And he clothes them. He forgives them. He covers their shame. And then number four, God removes them from the garden. And this is an interesting one, right? This is both an act of judgment and an act of mercy on God's part. That judgment, this was a judgment because God could not tolerate sin in his presence. So the man had to leave. But there's grace, however, because ironically, the, the assurance that, that man would die would also ultimately be good news because that meant he didn't have to live under the curse of sin and death for eternity. That God had to remove them from the garden because if not, they, would, they could eat from the tree of life and live forever in the condemnation of their sin. Doctor, here's the big idea. Your sin will surely, my sin, our sin, will surely bring eternal death. But Jesus can surely bring you eternal life. This is the gospel, that God out of his great love for us sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins, to raise for our justification so that we who come to him in faith will have peace for our conscience, purpose for our lives, and hope for the future even to eternity. Stop running. Adam, stop running from God. Eve, stop running, stop hiding. Come home. God wants to take that grave, bring it back to the garden. And the invitation is to come to him today and allow that to happen. And here's how we're gonna end, okay? When you walked in, you got one of these cups, right? COVID has made us do weird things, right? But I want to invite you to stand. Grab this little cup. If you're at home, I want to invite you to stand too. Grab your juice, grab your bread, crackers, whatever you got. Jesus gave us communion as a way to remember and celebrate the gospel. All right, that as we listen to Jesus' words to us in the Bible, as he explained what communion represents, it's beautiful and so good for us to do today especially in light of all that we heard in Genesis chapter three. But Jesus tells us through his word that the bread represents his body that was broken for us. The juice represents his blood that was shed for us, all for the forgiveness of our sin that keeps us away from God. And so as we take communion, guys, 
We thank God for Jesus. We thank God for the gospel that saved our lives. We thank God for sending the one who could crush the head of Satan and bring us life, bring us from the grave to the garden. This is what we do. This is good. This is great. This is gospel news to be celebrated today. And this is what communion is all about. It's a celebration. And so here's how we're going to do this, okay? Before we take the bread and the juice, I'm going to give you a minute as you stand there to go before God. I want you to stop listening to me and I want you to turn your ear to God. And I just want you to listen to him. Christian, I'll talk to you first and just say this, what is God saying to you? As you hear about sin, what is the sin in your life that's keeping you from intimacy with God? What is the sin in your life that is killing you? And this is the time for you to pray Psalm 139, search me, O God, and show me any grievous way in me. And you come and you, you hear that, and you remember the truth of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And so Christian, go to work and go before God. For those of you who are not following Jesus, you haven't put your faith in him, you're not a Christian. Communion for you today is an invitation to Jesus. As you stand in silence, bring your sins to God today and ask Jesus to forgive you. Even right now, if you are feeling God pursuing you, you you've been hearing the voice of Adam, where are you? And that brought you to Doxa today. If, if that is you in this place, even as you're hearing his voice, just call out to him and say, God, I see you. I see my sin. I see my need for Jesus. And ask him to take your sin and commit your life to him in faith. Go to work, Doxa, and do that.